Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast brought to you by The Nation magazine. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we are talking to someone who has a book that could not have come out at a better time. It's called Coach Prime, Deion Sanders and the Making of Men. Much to discuss with that title alone. He's a famed journalist. His name is Jean-Jacques Taylor, and his is a true insider account with access to Dion and his staff while at Jackson State. So I am sure much to discuss. Also, I'm talking to Adam Mansbach. That's a number one New York Times bestselling author of books like Angry Black White Boy and Go the Bleep to Sleep. And his latest is The Gollum of Brooklyn. I also have some choice words on DeSantis and New College of Florida. But first, Jean-Jacques Taylor. Jean-Jacques Taylor, JJT, thanks so much for joining us here on the pod. What's up, bro? I want you to please explain how the book was written and what kind of access you had to writing Coach Prime. Uh, now, let me ask, what do you mean how the book was written? Uh, I guess what I mean by how it was written, like, was it the sort of thing where you were uh, with him at Jackson State taking notes, writing it as it was oh. happening, or was it the sort of thing where only when the experience was done, you sort of collectively tried to put it together? No, well, um, no, I, 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 I'm, I live in Dallas. I'm from Dallas. Uh, I basically packed up and moved to Jackson uh, from August until December. And I spent all the time there. I was at the facility most days. And uh, I really tried to immerse myself in it and get the full experience because I wanted the players, like, you know, Dion is very wary of people, media, people who are not part of his program. So uh, when he gave me the access, it became, I want to be around so that everybody within the program understands who I am and what I'm all about. And so that they get to know me so that they feel comfortable talking to me um, about this, that, or the other thing. Because during the course of a season, you never know what's going to happen until it happens. And uh, I teach a class at SMU and I tell my students, it's too late to do the, well, actually I tell them this, you gotta do the work before the story. Meaning once the, once the story hits and the coach is getting fired, it's too late to be doing the work, calling people, talking about, hey, how you doing? No, you got to do all that before it happens. So my idea was move down there, hang out, immerse myself so that when something happens, I'm there. People are comfortable seeing me, talking to me. And so it would allow me to get the most honest, authentic look at the, uh, at the program. No, I, I hear you. Um, how did it feel when you realized your book was coming in strong? with the zeitgeist of the moment. You know, you were writing this book about Jackson State and Dion, and all of a sudden Dion has shot into the stratosphere at Colorado just with the book's release. What was that like for you to realize? Uh, I think it's, it's a great feeling because, you know, what, what I've tried to tell most people is, uh, especially people in Colorado is, you want to know why what he's doing in Colorado is working? This is the exact same blueprint he used at Jackson State. There's nothing new to it. There's nothing different to it. It's just on a much bigger scale. And, you know, if you want insight into why he is the way he is, why he does the things that he does, then this is a great book for you. Um, but, you know, everybody wants to write a book. If you want to write a book, everybody wants your book to be relevant. You want your book to be meaningful. You want your book to matter. And so 
Dion being Dion, him chasing that perfect season at Jackson State, uh, made him made the book matter and made the book relevant. Then it becomes, can I match? Can my work match the expectation that people have of, oh, what's what's the season all about? Like nobody wants to write a book. Everybody says, oh, Dion had this great season at Jackson State. Let me read it and go, ah, this piece of crap. So. You know, there's internal pressure that you put on yourself. And the way I tried to deal with that internal pressure, uh, because most writers will tell you, just like most athletes, you're your own worst critic. I don't need you to tell me my work sucks. I know whether I wrote a great story, a good story, or an average story. And so, um, uh, you know, one of the things I've done, I read a lot of Jeff Perlman's books, almost everyone has ever wrote. Uh, Howard Bryan is my boy. I know he's your friend. I've read... Most of the books Howard's written, uh, sports books he's written. I let you and you and Howard and my sister, Kianga Taylor, handle all that political stuff. Uh, <laughs> I just dip in and dip out. Uh, but I read those books, and what I gleaned from reading all those books is that if you want your book to be successful, you have to tell people some stuff that they didn't know, even if it's you know, Dion, and there's been a thousand stories written about Dion, especially in the last year. You got to give people some stuff they didn't know. And then you got to give them some interesting stories that they didn't know. And then somewhere along the book, you need them to go, wow, well, damn, wow, who knew that was going on? And if you could do that, then your book should be okay. And so to alleviate the pressure, I focused on those types of things. Am I giving people a surprise? Am I giving them something that they didn't know? Am I giving them a story they hadn't heard? And as long as I felt like I was getting some of that stuff, I felt okay. Mm. You spoke about that blueprint at Jackson State and applying it to Colorado. I think that that would be interesting for folks who are new to this for you to explain what that blueprint is. Well, I think the, the thing that the thing that Dion does is you you're working in a in a college football world where. 99% of college football coaches, maybe 99.9% of college football coaches, they want to control every single solitary thing. So you can only talk to two players and you can only talk to them once a week. I'm, I'm going to make myself available once a week for 10, 15 minutes. That's all you get. I'll talk to you after a game for 10 minutes and don't ask me any questions I might not want to answer. Okay, most college coaches keep a very closed, tight program. Okay, now Dion does that to some degree, but what does he do? He uses the cameras to bring you inside the program. I'm gonna show you what I wanna show you. And what does that do, Doc? He controls the narrative about Jackson State. He controls the narrative about Colorado. You can write whatever you wanna write, me included. They don't care because they're showing the world what they want the world to see. So when you when you put the cameras in there, every video he puts out, and you go to Well Off Media, the site that his son runs, and look at the, you ain't got to look at the video, look at the views, 500,000, 750,000, 1.2 million, 50,000, 100,000, 300,000. Every time you're looking at that video, what is it, man? It's a recruiting pitch. Hey. Here's how Coach Prime handles adversity after a tough loss to USC. Here's how Coach Prime handles adversity, a butt kicking by Oregon. Mm. Hey, here's how Coach Prime handles adversity. Young man, you need to go to class. 
you're not going to play until you do. Here's how he handles a big win. Here's how he handles an upset win. Here's how he talks to his coaches. After a win, you see what the program is all about. You as a parent, you as a student, you as, a, uh, as an athlete, you can decide, do I want to play for that guy? I think I do. And you can start, hey, I ain't hard to find. Send me a, send me a DM on IG. Hit me up on Twitter. As opposed to, hey, Dave, I don't know what this Twitter finger thing is you're talking about. I've got two, I'm too busy to worry about that. Well, Coach Prime got two million Instagram followers. How many of those kids, how many of you think those guys, 18 to 22? Five, six hundred thousand of them? That's where you find young people on Instagram. My son is 19. Where can I find him? IG. Literally, this ain't hard. Mm-hmm. If he don't respond to a text message I send him, and he's usually good about it. If he don't, duh. I just send him a text message, a DM on IG, and got a res- and say, hey, hit me right quick. I got a quick question. I got a response back. Why? That's where teenagers live. Dion understands that. And so, you know, he's a fisher of men. He's a fisher of recruits. Where does he fish? On IG and Twitter. Okay, but but th- there's a part of this that's that's to me always been difficult to understand. Like most people start as assistant coaches. The people who get to just start it as coaches, there's a learning process. Not only does it seem like there hasn't been a learning process for Dion that's reflected itself on the field, at least maybe behind the scenes, but he's also cutting edge on everything you're talking about, like stepping into the door, cutting edge. I mean, this is a man in his 50s, you know, and it seems like the, 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 the cool new thing. Like, how has he been able to pull that off? Okay, now, first and foremost, real tough, you got to understand, he's been coaching for 20 years. Mm. He's been coaching little kids, coached youth football uh, for probably 10, 12 years, and had a youth football organization. And so what did that do? Organizations are organizations. If you can run, trust me, if you can run a youth football organization and take that team all over the country to play in different, you know, championships or whatever, then you can certainly take a football team that's got 150 people in it on a trip. So the organization part, he learned from uh, doing what? Coaching youth football. He also coached high school football. He was the de facto head coach. He wasn't the head coach because, uh, you know, you got to, everything's got to be a certain way, paperwork and all that. But he was the de facto head coach at Trinity Christian Academy in suburban Dallas, which was actually about a mile from my house. Um, so he, he knew how to coach there. And then, you know, at the collegiate level, okay, you're still coaching. Okay, Dion has played for two Super Bowl champions, all right? The Cowboys, the 49ers. He played for the Yankees, a championship mm-hmm. organization. He will tell you, I know what championships look like. I know what championship organizations, how they operate, how they run. All right. And then you have to understand that just his personality is, is perfection. Everything he does must be perfect. He's the kind of guy who literally is 20 minutes early wherever he goes. Um, so all these things are all about how you run an organization. And he's mastered that. So it's not a, uh, none of that is a problem for him. And the football is probably the easiest thing because that's what he's done best over the years. And so, you know, he's always been an outside-the-box thinker. As he likes to say, my paper ain't never had no lines on it. I've always covered just wherever I wanted to and mm. because that's how he is. Uh, some people are visionaries, man. 
you know, and, uh, you know, if you get back to Nicholas Tesla, visionary, Thomas Edison, visionary, what makes sense to them don't make sense to the rest of the world. And when it comes to football, he may be a, uh, he's kind of a visionary. Mm. Yeah. He also doesn't seem to fit into a mold really of, you know, you've got the players coach and then you've got the hard ass, you know, you've got the ones who are tough on assistants and the ones who, you know, treat assistants like family. And that same goes with the kids. It seems hard for me as an outside observer to place Dion on that spectrum. How would you explain him as a coach in that regard? Oh, he's a, he's an old school hard ass, man. Hmm. Uh, no doubt with players and with assistants. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of rules, but the ones he does have, they're not negotiable, they're not bendable, they're not breakable, they're not pliant. You will follow them or you will not play. Um, remember, this is a cat who benched his son for the SWAC championship game, mm -hmm. Shiloh. Shiloh was in the building, but the rule is you got to be in the meeting room, in your seat when I walk in, because when I walk in, that's when the meeting starts. I'll never walk in more than 15 minutes early, but anywhere between 15 minutes and the start of the meeting, I may walk in. And so you need to be there when I walk in. And he wasn't. Uh, and so he benched him for the SWAT championship game. Uh, so he's got a few rules. Uh, they're not, they're not negotiable. Uh, he doesn't cuss, but I had one assistant coach tell me I've never felt worse than having him go off on me and he didn't cuss at me a single solitary time. Mm. Uh, he's incredibly demanding. Um, perfection is his goal, but what he does, and this is very nuanced, he doesn't push people to success. He pulls people to success, which means I set a standard for you and then I help you achieve that standard. Now you gotta work and you gotta grind, but if you do that, I can help you reach this standard that's good for all of us. And then the other thing is, man, he lets people do their job. Mm. So if, you, if you're the coach and he, and he says, hey, hey Dave, I think uh, Taylor should start a defensive tackle. And you go, well, coach, I really think Smith is better. He said, you think Smith is better? Yeah, I do. How come? And you give him your explanation. He said, okay, uh, I think Taylor's better, but if you think Smith is better, then you play Smith. Now you responsible for Smith. Mm. So if Smith balls out, I'm gonna come back, high five you, great job. And if, if Smith gets his butt kicked and we losing, I'm gonna be all over you like, what, what are you talking about? What did you see? And most coaches can live with that because you, you allow me to do my job as opposed to some coaches who, hey, play Taylor. And then when it don't work out, they still all over you. So he does that. And so I would say he's a lot of players coach in him, but he's a lot of disciplinary in him, and that's why it's successful. And the biggest thing is, um, and you talk to anybody about this, is he tells you the truth. Even if you don't want to hear about it. Uh, you know, and that's, you know, and, and he's brutally honest about it. He doesn't really pull a lot of punches. And so it can be hard to hear sometimes, but ultimately you can respect the person who tell you the truth, even if you don't like it, because the truth is the truth. And so, uh, you know, uh, he's not for everybody. He ain't trying to be for everybody. Like, everybody's like, oh, he could go to this school, he could go to that school. Nah, 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 nah. He's not for everybody. Mm -hmm. And everybody's not for him. Uh, it's just not. And so, you know, he has to be at a place that's a good fit. You could offer him $10 million, but if it wasn't a good fit, 
it wouldn't matter because he's all about fit and working with certain people a certain way. What do you think made Colorado, I mean, and going to a place like Boulder from Jackson, a good fit? They let him do whatever he wants to do. Mm, that'll do it. And, and what I mean is I need this, 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 and this to be successful. Okay, you can have this, 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 and this. Okay, uh, I need to hire these people to be successful. doesn't matter if it makes sense to you. I need this person in Jackson because she puts on the best events I've ever had put on. And when the recruits come, I want the events that they come to to be perfect. Let me hire her. That way I know the event will be perfect. And guess what else? I don't have to spend any time on it because she knows exactly what I like. She knows exactly what I do. And she doesn't do anything unless it's perfect. Hey, let me hire this guy to be my director of operations. He'd been in the military for 20 years. He's a good friend of mine. His kids played for me. I don't have to worry about him. Everything, because he'd been in the military for 20 years and owns two businesses, two successful businesses. One of them got a payroll of four and a half million. That ought to tell you what he's doing in terms of gross revenue. Let me hire him to do this right here because he's in the military. I don't have to worry about buses and stuff being on time. I don't have to worry about this or that. He's going to get things done in an orderly way. Boom. So he, he asked you to let me do all of this. Let me put all these people around him. Let me do things my way. And if you do so, I'm going to reward you with success. Hmm. Now, if you don't let me do it my way, I'm going I'm, I'm to be hard to work with mm -hmm. because I want it my way. Because ultimately, you're going to hold me accountable for whether we win or lose. If you let me have everything I need and everything I ask for, then I can't, I can't do anything but produce a winner for you. Mm. I assume, you know, what you've just been talking about is also what you mean when you say he's a maker of men. Um, yeah, but that's, that's, that's more toward an organization. When I'm talking about a maker of men, I'm like, he demands things of you as a young man that help you out down the road. Like he starts every team meeting with five or 10 minutes, depending on the mood and the tenor of things about life. And, um, you know, it could be any, you know, what he does is he breaks it down to that level. Like he might, uh, you know, he talked one time about investment. What's an investment? He goes, you got monetary investments that if you invest right, he goes, I like real estate because dirt never gets old. You can all, you can never have enough dirt. I like real estate. And so I invest in real estate. I hold on to things and hopefully it increases in value. He says, let's talk about y'all. Your time and your investment is yourself right now. And so he went through this thing. He said, okay, we got 24 hours in a day. You're going to eat for eight. I mean, you're going to sleep eight. You're going to be up here for four. Uh, you got class. That's another two or three. So you got... 10 hours left in the day and he went around the room. That's your investment. What are you investing in? And he said, then y'all just shout it out. Tell me, what are y'all investing in? Girls, video games, weightlifting, running, social time, social media, this or that. And finally, so he's talking, he says, so let me get this straight. I just want to make sure I understand. We got a root. He said, raise your hand. How many of y'all want to go to the NFL? Every hand shoots up. Okay, so all y'all want to go to the NFL. 
You got 10 hours a day to invest in your dream of going to the NFL. Y'all ain't investing but an hour, an hour and a half. Some of y'all who are really serious, y'all invest three hours. What about the other seven? He said, so what do you think your investment is going to be like? You think your investment at three hours will be better? I mean, will be the same as the person at one hour? And so he just went through this breaking down life. And so it says, now you can do the same thing with life like this. And so those are the kinds of things um, that help make men, you know, mm. and it's little things. And when I say little things, I mean stuff like this. Um, you have a lot of kids, it's just real talk, who come from single parent households, okay? I came from a single parent household, even though I went to visit my father every summer. During the nine months of the school year, it was just me, my mom, my sister. Let me ask you something, Dave. Who taught me to shave? Who taught me to tie a tie? The same person who taught me, my mom? Nope. Nobody taught me. Oh. <laughs> uh, my mom when did I had a, my first, You know, <laughs> when I went to go tie a tie, when I needed to tie a tie for homecoming, because my mom didn't know how to tie a tie, she asked mm. a guy who sold me to sold her the suit for me to wear to homecoming, can you tie the tie and put it in a loop? So that when he gets ready to go in three or four days, he just got to pull it down. All right. So he teaches young men how to tie a tie. Taught him, teaches them how to shave. Meaning, hey, here's how you do it. You go against the grain, you water, you do this, you do that. Um, little things like that help you become a man. It's not everything, but it's little things. Mm -hmm. So between the mindset and the personal hygiene stuff, all that's important to him about uh, being a man. You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about this. I mean, Dion is doing amazing things for college football right now. He's bringing millions of new eyeballs to the sport. And yet some of these coaches are so surly about him and his presence. And there have been, in my mind, even racist dog whistles about him and what he does. Has this reaction surprised you? Not really. Um, I I expect it because he's a polarizing dude. So you get a lot of people that, that aren't going to like him. Um, the one thing I, I've mentioned, the one thing that has surprised me, I would say, is a guy like Dan Lanning at Oregon. What he said didn't really surprise me. Okay, you can say that, but it seemed to be he seemed to be angry about something. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't just to me. It just didn't sound like a let me pep my team up speech. He seemed angry. And so it becomes, what are you angry about? Like, if you think about it, Dion really doesn't say anything about anybody else's program. You know, if you watch his teams play, they don't show both any more than, you know, like your quote, normal college football team. They show a lot of emotion, but they don't do anything special. They're not prancing around. They're not out there trying to talk and embarrass you. Uh, they don't commit a lot of personal fouls because he demands they play a certain way. And the best player, Aubrey Miller, SWAC player of the year last year, committed a personal foul in a game. I can't remember the opponent. Dion thought it was a dirty play, yanked him from the game for a quarter because mm. that's the way that's the way he coaches. And so, oh, I think the, the reason why you see some coaches get upset or have something to say about his program is uh, he represents something new. He represents change. And, you know, I like to say, and we just keep it real, we're talking about social Darwinism here. 
if you don't change and evolve, what will you do? You'll be that moth that didn't get them spots and you will die. Mm -hmm. And so if you take it to coaching, if you don't change and adapt and change into, I mean, you don't have to be Dion, there's only one of those. But if you don't change and adapt your program to today's athlete dabble, sweetie, you can find mm. yourself at Clemson getting your butt kicked on a quasi-regular basis because people have passed you by because they changed. And so I think there are some coaches fearful, like, dang, man, if I got to let rappers in my locker room now, dang, man, if I got to have cameras all around here just because this kid, just because this cat is doing it, man, I don't want to do that. Stuff gets on my nerves. I think you got a lot of that old man get off my grass syndrome mm -hmm. directed at him because he doesn't care. He's running his program the best way he knows how. And I don't want to say he's like me in a lot of ways, but we have a lot of similar approaches, meaning he meets kids where they're at. So I don't mind telling y'all this because I look good for my age. I'm 56. All right. Oh, surprise. <laughs> but I covered the NFL. Okay. How old are most NFL players? 22 to 30. Yeah. And most of them probably sit between 20, 21, and 28. So I'm trying to talk and relate to people half my age. Okay? How do I do that? Well, I listen to their music. I hang out on Instagram a little bit. And so I can go up to a kid if I'm if I don't have anything to say. I say, all right, Dave, keep it real with me, dog. You down with young boy, you down with dirt. Hmm. And they know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I said, man, I can't get down with young boy. That drill music, is too, he's too angry, dog. He's too angry. Maybe if he get off a of house arrest, he'd be happy. <laughs> you know? Or you like Boosie, man? Hmm. Boosie back in my day was good. I mean, Y'all got this old washed up Boosie. I mean, but I can have those conversations. And all of a sudden, we bond, we connect as much as we need to connect in the locker room. And boom, now when I come talk to you about football, it's all good because we, we have met at a common ground. Well, Dion does that with his players. He meets them on the common ground. And then when we need to talk about football and other stuff, you meet me where I'm at. Mm. Wow. You've been really generous with your time. I, I got to ask you, is there anything else about the book that you'd want to communicate to listeners? You know, the most impressive thing to me, man, and I think it's chapter eight or chapter nine. It's because uh, I walked up to him one day and I gave him the bro man hug. He said, what's this all about? I said, dog, you're doing some good work around here, man. He said, what you mean? I said, I just talked to a couple cats and they told me some stories about you. I'm like, bruh, you doing it? And he said, uh, come with me this afternoon, three o'clock, I want you to see something. And that's when he has, he had this meeting every Thursday at three o'clock with about 12, 13 players. And as he likes to say, we just get in this room and talk and get naked. And what he means is we bear our souls. You got a problem with your girl. You got a problem with your self-esteem. You got a problem with your confidence. This is a safe place to talk about it with me and your 12, 13 teammates here. And we can talk about how we can help you get through this. And there's a guy, Tyler Brown, who followed him to um, Colorado, who was just dealing with incredible anxiety. And uh, he talked about, you know, to the point he was taking medicine for anxiety. And he talked about the point where, uh, you know, the meeting really helped him because the best corner on the team, he's like, oh, you, you got anxiety too? You nervous? You got lack of confidence? I thought it was just me. And, uh, you know, they bond over that. And so the fact that most head coaches, I don't believe, do that. They might have an assistant do it, or they might have a counselor do it, but they're not there themselves leading the meeting, 
talking about, hey, what y'all want to talk about today? What's the topic y'all want to discuss that's really bothering you in your lives? And uh, as a head coach, to take time out of your day on a regular basis, hour, hour and a half, to sit down with your players, not all of whom are starters, not all of whom are difference makers, and just say, hey, I want to get to know you. And by the way, here's how I got where I am today. I used to have a problem with women. Two, three at a time. It was never enough. So it became about me. So what would make me happy? I had all these cars, had this big house, I had all these women. I wasn't happy. I had to find happiness for me. So I understand if you can have, you can be at Jackson State. You can have a couple of girls who love you or like you. You can have all of this attention because you're a really good player and you still don't feel fulfilled and satisfied. I can relate to that. So let me tell you what worked for me. Maybe it'll work for you or maybe we can find something else that works for you. And so uh, the fact he did that on a regular basis, man, I think that's cool. Mm. The book is Coach Prime, Deion Sanders and the Making of Men. The author is Jean-Jacques Taylor. Thank you so much for joining us here on Edge of Sports. I appreciate you, my friend. We'll be back right after this, but first a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Adam Mansbach, thank you so much for joining us here on Edge of Sports. My pleasure. So I've been reading your stuff for some time, and I'm always curious with novelists that I that I, that I like and respect. I I always want to know about the craft. Like, what was the first novel that you ever read that made you want to do this for a living? Man, that's a great question. The first thing that comes to mind is probably The Pushcart War by Gene Merrill. Do, wow. you, do you know that book? I've heard of it. I, the- it's accessing something in my brain. I mean, you might have read it when you were 10. I probably read it when I was 10. Each successive edition of The Pushcart War pushes the events of the book forward into the future. So you're always reading an account of a war that takes place slightly in the future. And it's presented as an account of a very small scale war that we are reading about so we understand it because it's sort of understandable. It doesn't take place on three continents. It just takes place in the streets of New York. And if we can understand it and the reasons behind it, we can avoid like having future wars. And the war is between the push cart peddlers of New York City and the big trucking companies who are trying to push the push cart peddlers off the streets. But really, they're trying to scapegoat them for how bad traffic is so that they can increase their numbers and ultimately have kind of like hegemony over the streets in New York. And the pushcart peddlers fight back by um, blowing uh, like these homemade kind of like dart mouth dart gun things at the truck tires and flattening the tires with push pins. And it's like masterfully told. It's incredibly kind of inspiring. The character development is great. You know, at the time, I didn't think of it as a particularly political book. But it absolutely is. It's about capitalism. It's about collective action. It's about these kind of like 
the peddlers are very much this collection of like old world characters like you know it takes place ostensibly in the future but they all feel like my grandparents or your grandparents you know what i mean they sell hot dogs they sell flowers they sell like all kinds of kind of kitschy stuff some of them like live in or under their push carts even and the guy masterminding it all is the push cart king maxi hammerman who runs a push cart repair shop as you can see i could actually I mean, go on about this i was for just like... about to say when's the last time you read this book like this morning yeah 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 i read it i've read it a lot over the years i've read it to my kids and mm -hmm. actually years ago i got hired to adapt it for the screen unfortunately for various reasons it never made it uh, but i still think about coming back to that project i would still love to see that on the screen that would be amazing do you have a treatment for it oh i got a full script man say the word we could we can just we can send, go it, shoot it send it my way just so i'll, I'll shoot it all see, right you never know Shot, <laughs> shots in the dark do hit um yeah, you know, as you were talking, it occurred to me just how strong New York is in a lot of your writing. Can you speak a little bit about your relationship to the city, its roots, and just where that and why it seems to stoke some creative fires in you? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And this is despite the fact that I haven't lived in New York in 15 years, but I did live in New York for about 15 years. You know, I grew up in the Boston area. My grandparents were from New York. My grandfather's from the Bronx, grandmother from the Upper West Side. Um, first and foremost, as a kid for me, New York was where hip hop was from. You know, and I was a rapper, I was a DJ, I was a graffiti writer. A lot of my politics were forged in the fire of late 80s hip hop. A lot of my ability to write toward a critique of whiteness and structural racism comes from being a 12 year old white kid listening to Public Enemy and Boogie Down Productions and X-Clan and Brand Nubian and Stetson Sonic and Queen Latifah. So New York was always my destination. Like by the time I was probably 12 or 13, it was clear to me that one way or another, by hook or by crook, I was going to go to New York for college. And that's what I ended up doing. Um, and as soon as I got to college, uh, instead of like paying attention to my studies, hmm. pretty much immediately well, I guess it was the like the first week of my sophomore year, I started a hip hop magazine. I was commuting down to NYU to take Trisha Rose's class, uh, which was the first time she would taught it. And one of the first times anybody had taught a hip hop class at a major university. And it was a mind blowing, mind expanding class where we didn't even talk about hip hop for the first six weeks. She was like, if you think you're just going to be in here quoting lyrics and like high fiving each other, Here's some Adorno, here's some Horkheimer, here's some Paul Gilroy, here's some Amiri Baraka. That weeded out the people who weren't like really about it. I was in the front row at 9 a.m. commuting down from Columbia. And I was in the front row next to Alan Kett, who had just started Stress Magazine. And, you know, I started this- What was this, the magazine you started? It was called Elementary. Oh, it was, we, okay. built, we built it as a hip hop journal, which basically meant that I let everybody write as long as they wanted. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. yeah, you invented so, a long read. Yeah, that's right. Like, you know, John Caramonica's first piece ever was for elementary. It was like an interview with Raskast that ran like 7,000 words. You know what I mean? So, you know, I felt like I was running around the city and everything that I had imagined it to be, all the romance with which I had imbued it as a hip hop fan, as a jazz fan, as a graffiti aficionado, it was right there. It was right there for the taking. New York wasn't what it had been 10 years earlier, but it never is. But I was running around 
with the same people that I had been lionizing from afar, you know, like by my sophomore year of college, when I'm running this journal, suddenly, you know, I'm hanging out with phase two. Uh, I'm at his house watching him make collages when, you know, three years earlier, I had just been staring at his work in the book Subway Art. Mm -hmm. Um, So I came in as like a historian of New York through hip hop and then through the lens of jazz. A couple years later, I started working as a roadie for the jazz drummer, Elvin Jones, who was John Coltrane's drummer, you know, who lived in a building on the Upper West Side on Central Park West, where, you know, he'd been for 30 years and there was so much history just in that building. He used to live there along with Max Roach and Abby Lincoln and Rashawn Roland Kirk. He was the only one still living there. But like when I got to New York, it was suffused with all of this history and richness and the density of it, the way that people live piled up on top of each other. Um, it required a certain attentiveness from you. Like you couldn't be sleeping. You couldn't be, you know, you might, you know, both because you might miss some things and also because you still might get got. Like it wasn't safe everywhere. It wasn't necessarily safe anywhere. Um, but there was a vibrancy and I just, I liked the freedom and the, the, just the feeling of kind of running wild in that city as a young kid. Um, and, you know, it was my first exposure to a lot of cultures that I hadn't been exposed to in Boston. You know, you move to New York, you move to Brooklyn, suddenly there's reggae everywhere. So like, I was already a DJ, I already liked reggae, but you move to like Fort Greene in the, in the late 90s and suddenly you're like, no, I really need to get up on my reggae. You know, like I really need to, all right, let me go to Beat Street and spend the next week and a half listening to 45. So like next time I, I'm playing out and somebody's like, play dance hall, I can be like, bet, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, New York, yeah, New York, New York's always held a special place for me. Even when I come here now, the energy uh, still feels transformative. It still feels different than when I'm at home in the Bay. And of course, I've been in California for like 16, 15, 16 years. Nobody ever mistakes me for like a Californian, you know, <laughs> like that will never happen. No, it, it tested me when I first heard you were from Boston. Right. <laughs> New York to the core. Yeah. Uh, Ancestrally uh, from New York. I, I need I need to send you uh it's just it just is in vibe with everything you're saying. Uh I wrote an obituary obituary after Adam Yauk died that mm. is is just about the New York of that time and what the Beastie Boys kind of represented to a young white hip hop aspirant trying yeah. to figure out what, what actually is my place in this world and how can I operate in a way that's you know, that's not corny and also not insulting and yeah, um, where I can walk and breathe easy while also being part of this culture that I was besotted with. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to read that. Oh man. Thank you. That means and you lot. just, and you just put your fingertip right on it. Like in hip hop and in New York and in most of the worlds and subcultures that I care about, you can't be corny. You yeah. can be almost anything but corny, <laughs> you know? Exactly. The, the unforgivable yeah uh, no coming back from corny none none whatsoever so you, you you've got these themes in your writing that involve new york particularly brooklyn that involve whiteness and structural racism that involve uh judaism as as an ethic and and as a politic and you now you have the golem of brooklyn it's an incredible book how do you see the themes that you've been writing about 
over the course of your career come to fruition in this book? Well, I think one through line in my career has always been the use of humor and just about to say that the use of absurdity. Yeah. yeah. So, and more so the more serious the topic I'm trying to address for the most part. Um, I've found over the course of my career that humor plays a unique role. It's a unique color on my palette as a writer because it can disarm people. It can bring people to the table and get them to discuss things or consider things that ordinarily they might be too guarded to contemplate, that are too fraught, too dangerous, too scary, too intellectually uh, confusing. But if you can get them laughing, you can make some headway. And paradoxically, a lot of the things that are most divisive and have been most damaging in the history of this country are fundamentally absurd. Like, you know, race itself is sort of biologically non-existent. And it would be hilarious that we put so much stock in it and paid so much attention to it, were it not the, the, the you know, had it not savaged so many generations of lives, um, had it, it, you know, like the ways in which anti-Semitism function are actually absurd. Like they're hilarious. The idea that Jews are engaged in some secret hive-minded conspiracy where we're all working toward a insidious common goal is actually hilarious if you've ever been in a room with a Jew or two <laughs> Jews, in which case there's three opinions, right? Like we've been, we can't even agree over the course of thousands of years about like what grains are allowed in our houses during Passover. So it's absurd to think that we're all united in some secret conspiracy, or it would be if it wasn't getting people hurt and killed, you know? Um, the absurdity of the ways that anti-Semitism exists like from above and from below is hilarious. Like Jews are both these kind of subhuman parasites that worm their way into the body politic and, you know, eat away at it like gnats or roaches, but also we're superhuman, super intelligent, puppeteering all of history and controlling all sides of every war. It's like pick a side, pick a stereotype. Like it's funny, but it's not. Mm -hmm. So I think that humor and absurdity, you know, are a through line in the book. The Golem of Brooklyn certainly relies on both of them to take on some serious subject matter, you know, as did Angry Black White Boy, as does some of my shorter form political stuff, the political ads I've been making in the past few years and the PSAs. Um, so that's certainly a through line. Um, I think with the Golem of Brooklyn, you know, my attention is trained in a new kind of way, or at least an evolving kind of way for me on Judaism. Um, you know, for a long, like as a kid, I, you know, I have four Jewish grandparents. I'm, I'm as Jewish as they come on one level, um, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't raised in an observant household. I was not observant, except in the sense that I noticed things, <laughs> you know what <laughs> I mean? Um, and in a way that means that I escaped from a lot of the standard types of education or indoctrin indoctrination that a Jewish kid might get. Like I wasn't in Hebrew school. Mm. My parents didn't belong to a synagogue. They sent me to an off-brand Sunday school that rented space from a junior college where Hebrew was optional. And I still managed to get kicked out of that. Um, <laughs> so like whatever education and indoctrination, all the other, you know, kids in my Boston suburb got every Tuesday and Thursday, I was oblivious to. Mm. So like, you know, I didn't have to like unlearn some set of 
ideas about observance or about Israel, um, I could kind of come to these things as an adult and investigate them in my own way, on my own time. I think it wasn't until I started writing The End of the Jews, which is my third novel, mm -hmm. that I really started thinking in a deep, serious way about Judaism. Before that, my paradigm around race was really black and white. I was very interested in investigating and talking about structural racism and whiteness and white privilege. Um, again, hip hop put me in those kind of conversations and that kind of mind state. And Judaism, if anything, before that had been for me a way to try to semantically escape from my own whiteness. Like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish, I'm not white. But that's hard to do when you go home and nothing in your home is particularly Jewish, you know? And, and, the only, and you know, you're only gonna attend a Seder if you go to your friend's house. Mm -hmm. um, and your grandparents are skeptical or hostile toward it. You know, culturally Jewish, 100%. Religiously, observantly Jewish, my family, 0%. So it wasn't until I started writing that book, which wasn't intended to be about Jewish, Jewish stuff at all. It was intended to be about like my grandparents' generation and mine. But in talking at length with my grandfather, who was in his late 80s when I started researching that book, it became clear to me how much his, his Judaism was a set of parameters that defined his life, despite his not being interested in the religious aspects of it. It still defined what he could and couldn't do. It still made him, you know, a trailblazer when he found himself in certain environments where he was the first Jewish person. Um, and I don't know, that got me thinking in a different kind of way. And of course, there's, you know, the complex Jewish relationship to whiteness, which I've since become very interested in exploring and I talk about in the book. Um, there's the kind of fraught black Jewish relationship, which has been written about so extensively, probably no two groups of people have had so much ink spilled on their behalf ever. Mm -hmm. And yet, there's still a lot that hasn't been said and a lot we ought to be talking about in terms of the beautiful and the problematic aspects of our long shared history together particularly mm -hmm. on the like progressive left. So I don't know, man, I've been talking for a long no, time. No, that's maybe. great. No, 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 no. It's, it's great to take all this in. I'm just very struck by some of the, the cultural similarities of our families, if not exact, certainly rhyming to a great yeah. degree. Um, so g give us a, I said Gollum, you said Golem. That's interesting. But tomato, tomato. <laughs> I was going to ask you: Is it tomato, juice, tomato? Opinions, yeah. <laughs> or have I been, or have I been mispronouncing it for decades? But if if you could tell people a little bit about the plot, you know, without too many spoilers, just just to wet wet the appetite a little bit, because I do want people. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, the golem of Brooklyn. Let me begin by talking about what a golem is. Yes. A golem in Jewish folklore is a humanoid being created out of mud or clay by a rabbi or a learned man, nine or 10 feet tall, always created at a time of immediate crisis, not existential crisis like, oh, anti-Semitism exists in the world, but crisis like the Cossacks are riding down the hill or like the villagers are marching with torches. Um, the way you create a golem is through secret incantations and prayers and always by inscribing the Hebrew word for truth on the forehead of the golem or writing it down and inserting it into his mouth. And the golem comes alive and he defends the Jewish people from the crisis. And when he's done his job and safety has been reattained, you know, at least temporarily, um, you deanimate the golem by erasing a letter from the word and the word emmet 
truth becomes met, death, and he returns to mud or clay. Now, my book begins with a guy who is not a rabbi, not a learned man, making a golem, not at a time of crisis. My guy, Len Bronstein, is, a, is an art teacher in Brooklyn who's been stealing clay from his school for several years and happens to be incredibly stoned. And he makes a golem and he manages to bring it to life. And the golem immediately starts screaming at him in Yiddish, which he doesn't speak, and trashing his apartment. And what we'll eventually learn about this golem after he does learn English by watching mad episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm while on an incredibly high dose of LSD is that the golem is a creature that has an ancestral memory. So you don't make him, you just remake him. He, it's only been one golem throughout all of history. So he's kind of this repository of Jewish memory and trauma. And those two words are like basically interchangeable in you know the realm of Judaism. Um, but he's only been around for like the gnarliest stuff. And he wants to know where the crisis is and why he's been summoned. Len doesn't have an immediate answer. Um, so the book takes us on kind of a wild journey. Len, the golem, um, an ex-Hasidic woman named Miri who lives in the neighborhood and is brought in initially to translate Yiddish. Um, the three of them embark on what ends up being an epic road trip. And at some point in their travels, as the golem continues to wonder where the crisis is, Miri shows him a video of the Charlottesville Unite the Right Tiki Torch marchers chanting Jews will not replace us and is like these guys here's the crisis these this is who wants to kill the Jews the golem is like great finally we're getting somewhere where are those guys and they begin to make their way to a rally in Kentucky called the save our history's future rally it's going to take place in a couple of days and attract a similar demographic and you know ultimately Len and Miri are sort of faced with this moral quandary about what to do because it becomes clear that the golem's intentions are to kill everybody the golem doesn't play around he's not going to half step he's not just there to scare them his way of defending the jewish people is to kill the enemies of the jewish people and this kind of brings them face to face with a kind of moral ethical dilemma about what happens if you allow that right like if you let the golem kill the enemies of the jews you might be safe but you also kind of might no longer be Jewish on some essential moral level. But your only other option really is to kill the golem. Um, so that's sort of where we ultimately end up. Um, but there's, you know, a lot of fun and adventure and digression and diversion along the way, you know, like the Talmud. Yeah, just like the Talmud. <laughs> I was just thinking that. Um, you've been really generous with your time. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, uh, and is it okay if we don't talk about sports at all? It's your show, man. We can talk and, about anything I mean, you want. You know, the liberation of the <laughs> podcast as opposed to us doing Edge of Sports TV, even though yeah, I can yeah. do that with you, is I can just ask you about hip-hop at 50. I mean, yeah. it generated a lot of think pieces. I don't know if you've written one. It's been interesting to me that the tone has been less than celebratory, particularly mm. by the old heads writing about where it is as an art form. Uh, it's, it's interesting to me that there certainly isn't like a, a uniformity on how it's going. There's a discomfort. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious, like, what are your reflections of it 
I guess, I guess the, the double question, what, what you think of its influence on society and what you think of the state of the art. Yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of thoughts and a lot of conversations about hip hop at 50. Nothing I've been moved to kind of like write down, you know, my mind sort of been on other things in terms of what I want to write about. Um, but hip hop at 50 is fascinating. I mean, my first reflection is simply that it's kind of remarkable still to me that we're in a place where hip hop at 50 merits national celebration, New York Times Magazine tributes, uh, that hip hop has made the kind of incursion that it has. Because, you know, you and I remember when it was underground music that had to fight literally for its right to exist. Mm -hmm. It was being constantly confronted by critics who claimed it wasn't music, wasn't art, that it inspired nothing but violence and mayhem, you know, as if black teenagers smuggled violence or misogyny into the country through hip hop, right? Um, but these, you know, I, I'm from the era where I had the new the Newsweek rap rage cover story on my dartboard in my bedroom as a kid that was filled with like hysteria and misinformation, you know, and it's it's just wild to fast forward all these years and find this celebration of hip hop as this quintessential part of culture and an American art form, you know, and it's like there's never really been any sort of process of apology on the part of all the people who castigated and dismissed it. I mean, I don't know what that would look like. I'm not looking for some truth and reconciliation committee or anything, <laughs> but it's just funny, right? It's this slow creep toward, I don't know, respectability, celebration, mainstreaming, it's pop music on a global level. Mm -hmm. um, but it's funny when you remember like Calvin Butts rolling over C uh, CDs with a steamroller on the streets of Harlem or Tipper Gore and the PMRC trying to ban all the music or, you know, just, it was constantly a struggle toward acceptability. So it's on one level, just wild to see where we're at now. Um, and it's, you know, it's inspiring in a way, but also there's part of me that's like, I don't need this. I don't, hip hop doesn't need this. We don't need this like applause. We don't need the, you know, the, the readership of these like, high culture magazines to suddenly accept what we've been doing like um i'm happy for anybody who's able to get a paycheck off of it but i'm also like for a lot of people they're going to get a paycheck in 2023 when hip-hop is 50 and in 2024 when hip-hop is 51 and there's no zero at the end of the number and nobody planning these galas they're going to be scuffling and struggling again you know it's like we we lionize and we support our artists for the briefest of moments. So I want everybody to get paid they can. Um, but it's also funny to me how histories sort of coagulate and become accepted fact and go, and, and you know, the myth making involved, right? Like August 11th, Cool Herc and Cindy Campbell throw the party. It's like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. It may have never happened. The flyer isn't from then. You know, Grandmaster Flash was talking about it recently. They were like, somebody asked him, like, were you at the party? He was like, no, I wasn't. And you know what? I'd like to meet someone who was. <laughs> and like, you know, years ago, that party was not necessarily talked about as, it was talked about as the beginning of hip hop for totally different reasons than, than the ones we get now. My friend Joe Schloss was pointing this out to me. Um, he was like, 10, 15 years ago, that party was supposedly like, 
where all four elements of the culture came together at the same time, which again, what does that even mean? That graffiti writers were like painting on the walls? Probably not. But you know, I mean, there are winners and losers in myth-making and in history. And, you know, August 11th and 1973 and that party have been cemented in the sort of popular history of the culture. And that's okay, but it's probably not okay if you're a DJ from Brooklyn who was doing the same thing at the same time. Hip Hop is 50 has mostly made me reflect on some of the storylines that I grew up accepting um, without question that now with the benefit of a little more perspective just aren't really true or aren't what they were presented as. And it's not for better or for worse. It's just a matter of accuracy. Like, I don't really have a horse in this race. I'm just somebody who grew up being told, for example, that hip hop was the story of kids dusting off these old records, these artifacts from their parents' stereo cabinets and like reanimating them and finding new life in them and repurposing obsolete and obscure technology like turntables, you know, but really that thing of like, they built it on the backs of their parents' records, these obscure and forgotten tunes. It's just not really true. Like nothing that Grandmaster Flash was playing in 1977 was an old record. They were all relatively new records, especially when you account for the fact that sort of culture moves slower. Like a three-year-old record was still a new record in 1977, mm -hmm. basically. But like none of those breaks he was playing, none of those disco breaks, none of those funk breaks was more than 10 years old at the oldest. And most of them were new, were, 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 not, were not from some parents' record crate. They were in the new arrival section. Those disco breaks were brand new. They weren't being played on the radio and maybe they weren't being play, played the way he was playing them. But like, it's just funny with the benefit of more hindsight and way, way too much time spent, you know, collecting records and playing them for people in my life that you just realize the fallacy of some of the things you were told, you know, like, um, and, and it's interesting. And it's like, I don't know that one. I don't know whose benefit it's, I don't know who benefits from the, the truth of it or the myth busting of it. That one is sort of neutral. You know, hip hop started in the Bronx is less neutral. Uh, you know, gr gr uh, Cool Herc played the first party is less neutral. But, you know, it's interesting to have lived through something that then becomes mythology, I guess, ultimately. Yeah, amen to that. I mean, I'm thinking of BDP, still number one, and he said 50 years down the line, you know, and yeah. we remember hearing that and just yeah. laughing. Yeah, but you know, totally, totally. And it's, it's, you know, yeah, I'm at 50 years down the line, we can start this because we'll be the old school artists. artists. But, you know, it's interesting though, because in fairness, these debates about origin stories and chronology have been raging in hip hop from a very, very early point. And BDP is a perfect example. KRS-One, you know, got his start basically dissing MC Shan for claiming hip hop was from Queensbridge. Shan yeah. wasn't really saying that, but Karis one was able to make an anthem about the Bronx based on sort of, you know, spinning what Shan said as meaning something different. And even before that, like, you know, hip hop wasn't on wax until 1979. And mm -hmm. by 1985, Just Ice is making records like going way back where he's literally like, here's a list of everybody who was there. And if I did not say your name, you were not there. Like, this immediate impulse to like 
litigate and structure the past mm-hmm. is a constant feature of hip hop, really. Like those guys were already on that from a very, very early point. Um, so I think that's worth mentioning too. No, that's great. That's really sharp. It also makes sense given that I think hip hop more than other music has had this stress on authenticity uh, being an important part of who you are going forward. Like, like where Eminem is from and where Kid Rock is from, that matters, the difference to people. Yeah, it's so funny that you say that because, you know, my oldest daughter is 15 and she's a music head and she's very well versed and she might get in my car and like put on MF Doom or Gangstar and I love her for it. But she also plays me a lot of new music, which I also love. And every single time, Dave, she'll put something on in the car. My first question is, where's she from? And, <laughs> and she's looking at me like, what? Why does that, like, why are you even asking that? And it's just my, my immediate impulse. Anytime I hear something new, whether it's hip hop or not, but especially if it's hip hop, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, okay, this is cool. Where's she from? Where's he from? Yeah. And my daughter's like, I don't know, Spotify. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But like places where like that used to really matter in jazz and blues, and now people go to conservatories to, yeah. to do it, and they still may make beautiful music, and aspersions are not cast upon them for having that level of classical training. But hip hop, even though it's moved from being an insurgent culture to effectively being the culture, there still is that 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 stress on authenticity. Maybe it's just for people of our vintage. But that, but I do the same thing as you. Where are they from? You know, what are they representing? Is what lurks under that question. That's right. It matters to yeah, us. It, no, it absolutely does. And those lineages are important. And yeah, you know, they were important, like you say, in jazz too. But they were very much beneath the surface. Like mm. I remember when I was a roadie for Elvin Jones, him telling me about the first time the first bands he was in and the first time he got out on the road in jj johnson's band and like who was in that band and which of the guys in that band were from detroit like him or from pontiac rather like him and how they took care of him in a particular kind of way and the lineages and the points of connection you know underlying the music and the connections like it was there in jazz too. You know, he was like, yeah, Tommy Flanagan was from Detroit. So he's the one who took care of me on the road when I couldn't even afford to eat because I had to dry clean my bandstand suit twice a week and pay for my drums. Mm -hmm. It's like, man, that's not a great gig. Um, Great gig. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, that sense of place and authenticity. Yeah. I, I think, I think it remains important. I mean, I think even to young people, it may be filtered differently, but I think, the notion that you can't be faking your persona is still, I want to yeah, think that matters, hip-hop, for sure. you know? And maybe it's also speaks to my distance from, uh, I mean, partly it's like my, my son's obsession is, is nineties hip hop now. And how old is your son? Oh, <laughs> he's 15. Yeah. Same as my daughter. Yeah. yeah. And maybe so they can form a super group. <laughs> yeah. And he knows the modern stuff, but he tends not to share it with me as much as him finding some 90s track that he thinks I'd like. Because, yeah. It's frankly because I've expressed my uh, <laughs> antipathy to some of it. I mean, some of it I absolutely love. Uh, like that's relatively new, like, you know, Joey Badass. But I find myself like I heard the other day that Pete Rock was going to do an album with Common and I practically, you know. Yeah. 
you know, piss my pants. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, and that's where I yeah. get to the KRS one 50 years down the line. One of yeah. the, my impressions of hip hop 50 is how many of these older artists are still just making great music or are still able, like I saw, you said half step and earlier I saw big daddy Kane uh, in August and yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Big daddy Kane flowing. Everything it down. And then yep. when he said his age from the stage, uh, he got a, he got like people went nuts, you know, yeah. and it, it was, it was kind of beautiful. Yeah, no, it is. Kane is still out there killing it and can yeah. still get up and perform Wrath of Kane without losing his breath. It's amazing. Um, but you know, it's just like, it shouldn't be surprising, right? Like, I think the thing that we do in America is we, we lionize artists. We put them on a pedestal, but then we basically put the pedestal in a box. So we acknowledge their greatness, but then we want to immediately put parameters on that greatness and say like, oh, this guy, you know, yeah, Big Daddy Kane, one of the best from 1987 till 1992. And it's like, most of the time, that's not true. Mm -hmm. Most artists continue to do good work and in most cases, even better work. And the spotlight may or may not still be on them. Hip hop is a youth culture or so we've been told, but you know, like, quietly many of the icons that we listened to in the 90s are rhyming better now than they did in their like moment of glory you know like jizza is a great example jizza was great in you know the 90s on liquid swords on the wu-tang albums jizza quietly makes great music today still like it shouldn't surprise us that his pen game continued to improve like why wouldn't it you know we're not talking about like running you know we're not talking about being a point guard like your knees don't give out. You, you don't you don't lose your ability as an artist. A lot of artists, you know, I mean, I always think about Louis Armstrong, who was considered, you know, this game changing Titan, the greatest trumpet player ever in the 1920s. Listen to him in the 1950s. He sounds better. He's more seasoned. His his bag is deeper, you know, but we were sort of told to forget about him by that point, And we tend to. It's a very rare artist who is given the grace of this kind of extended prime, you know? It's only the kind of, it's, it's rare, it's the Miles Davises, but like how many people are even allowed to reinvent themselves or not even reinvent themselves, just continue to improve and get acknowledged for it, you know? I think of a writer like Philip Roth who unquestionably was better in his 60s than he was in his 30s, you know? Easy. Um, but yeah, we, we valorize certain things we isolate certain moments and we don't really let artists like have that runway or that grace to continue to do their thing or much less innovate. And of course we valorize youth to an unprecedented degree. Yeah. So people will go to that first album and mine it for genius. Even if, you know, decades down the line, you know, you're making uh, hello nasty. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, That's what you're talking about. Yeah, like a like a like a like a preponderant. If you ask hip hop heads to make their list of like the fifty greatest albums, I would I would wager that at least half will be somebody's first album. Yeah, and that's fascinating, right? Like that would never be the case in jazz. Never no. be the case in funk. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Never, never, because there would be the expectation also that people are learning their craft over time. Yeah, and getting better with time. I mean, yeah. wow, that, that's a great point, yo. Adam Mansbach, you've been so generous with your time, man. Really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, man. Uh, I could do this all day. 
we could do it for a while. We could just do like compare and contrast upbringings. And by the time after a little (laughs) while, we'll start confusing which was mine and which was yours. That's right. (laughs) But that was, that was what the city, the city was my playground. That is for for better and worse. But yo, man, thanks so much for joining us here on Edge of Sports. Yo, my pleasure. Thank you, Dave. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I have some choice words. Okay, look. In a little-noticed story, the National Association of Intercollegiate Athletics accepted the membership of New College of Florida, a 700-student institution in Sarasota that did not even have an athletic department a few months ago. Monday's unanimous decision came after quote, a thorough vetting process, according to conference chairman David Armstrong. That Armstrong's thorough vetting process preceded their acceptance makes the news all the more appalling. The NAIA chose to legitimize the openly right-wing seizure of the institution. The recent actions of New College's administration has been at odds with the rights of teachers, students, and the very principles of education. The NAIA should have rejected the application Instead, the unanimous vote is a green light for far-right takeovers of institutions beyond Sarasota. The creation of a new college athletic department has been one of the school's top priorities since Governor Ron DeSantis decided to crush and remake the institution to match his own image, a far-right authoritarian with a penchant for baseball. The floundering presidential aspirant is using New College to show what he wants to do to higher ed nationally as part of his war on woke. This has included the exodus of allegedly left-wing professors, the shutting down of departments like gender studies, the elimination of the diversity, equity, and inclusion workforce, the forcing out of students, the painting over of political murals, the prevention of student orientation leaders from wearing Black Lives Matter or Pride pins, the elimination of gender-neutral bathrooms, and hiring political bottom feeders to run the whole operation. These flunkies include interim school president Richard Corcoran, who calls his admissions department with all of his boss's trademark subtlety, SEAL Team 6, after the kill squad that took out Osama bin Laden. Another school leader of this hostile takeover is a grandstanding, that's grandstanding, media-addicted gadfly named Christopher Rufo, best known for leading online harassment campaigns against professors who teach critical race theory or support transgender students. If you ever wanted to know what your racist uncle would do to a college if given absolute control, you can just look at New College. And NAIA membership is critical to their project. The far-right extremists in charge are using sports to overhaul the ideology of the student body. In a recent press release posted on the official State of Florida website, DeSantis boasts of the success of the new college. 
He crows that in addition to canceling departments and driving out undesirable students and faculty, the former Yale baseball player celebrates, quote, the introduction of intercollegiate athletics outside of existing intramural sports by forming six teams and a scholarship fund for incoming athletes and recruitment of nearly 150 student athletes since launching the athletic program in the spring. The number, according to media reports, is more like 115, but it is still staggering. 115 new student athletes out of just 700 students. As Stephen Walker of the Sarasota Herald Tribune wrote, establishing an athletic program from scratch within months has been a foundation of Corcoran's plan to swell the fall 2023 class, the first under his guidance and a cornerstone in the Governor Ron DeSantis directed transformation of the school into a more conservative classical liberal arts college in the mold of the Christian Hillsdale College in Michigan. Wilson also reports that New College will enroll 70 freshman baseball players under scholarship. The University of Florida, a Division I powerhouse with a student population 90 times larger than New College, has 37 baseball players on scholarship in total. Despite grades and test scores that lag badly behind other students on campus, this new crop of student athletes at New College have disproportionately received merit-based scholarships from admissions. Of the 179 incoming students awarded the $10,000 per year Presidential Honors Scholarship, 84 were student athletes. This is not about sports, and this definitely isn't about giving student athletes the chance at a college education. This is about DeSantis's state government sending millions in taxpayer money to New College so they can purchase a right-wing student body through athletic scholarships to replace those students they have driven out. They are building an athletic department at a school of just 700 people so they can throw money at athletes coming largely from Christian private schools to play for an athletic director and coaches of similar right-wing religious bents. The college has also assigned these new freshman student athletes the fancy dorms usually reserved for upperclassmen. The upperclassmen who come from the pre-DeSantis new college are being moved to hotels off campus in a mold-infested dorm that an outside firm said should not be occupied in their current condition. This is about privileging some students and driving out the rest on political grounds. This is a taxpayer-subsidized purge. The NAIA had a choice to make and it chose to sanction ideological cleansing. The new college should be a pariah institution but instead the NAIA unanimously welcomed it with open arms. We all know DeSantis and Rufo have an agenda. Clearly the NAIA does as well. They had a chance to take a stand. Whether or not DeSantis somehow becomes president, we could all be feeling the consequences of this decision in the years ahead. Well, that's all the time we had for this week's show. Thank you so much to JJT, Jean-Jacques Taylor, for coming on to talk Dion. Thank you so much to Adam Mansbach. Thank you so much to David Tigaboo, the producer of this podcast. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.